Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. I'm Emma Zimmerman, and my cookbook is called The Miller's Daughter. You're at the forefront of America's heritage grain movement. In a country overrun by corporate homogenized grain farming, you and your father are champions of rare and near extinct varieties of ancient grains. This is the story of how you rescued obscure grains from the brink of extinction and what you ate along the way. Now, what exactly are heritage and ancient grains? Are they two different things? Are they the same thing? What's the story? Right. And that's kind of the fundamental fundamental question of the book, but heritage grains are grains that we say kind of are pre-1950s, pre-industrialization like of agriculture and wheat farming. And ancient grains are even older, you know, things like the Romans and Egyptians would have been eating. So those are always very exciting. Einkorn, farro, things like that. So I grew up in Kansas. And when I cracked this cookbook open, I was surprised to read that there was an Arizona grain industry. And then I went further down the rabbit hole and um, discovered that Italian pasta makers love Arizona bread durum wheat. I can't imagine crops growing in the desert. I know. Isn't that such a fun fact? That's like our claim to fame is that we export a lot of durum wheat to Italy because it's such high quality. And then... It gets sent back (laughs) as pasta. I love surprising people with that image of wheat growing in the desert. And I think my cookbook photographer did such a good job of capturing this desert wheat field and the Southwest feel of um, our mill. So in the cookbook, you talk about how your dad saw the wheat on his family farm get shorter and shorter with the advent of get rich quick modern seed varieties. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So my dad grew up in North Dakota on a poly farm. They also grew wheat and he has pictures of, you know, his grandparents, farming, his dad farming, his cousins farming modern day, and just seeing the different wheat varieties over time and how they change. So one trademark of heritage grains is that they're very tall. And that trait was bred out of wheat over time to make it shorter and just easier to harvest. And of course, there's always like consequences and trade-offs when when we do that. For those that don't know, my dad and I run this mill together, um, a father-daughter venture, which is really fun. And I tell a lot of stories in the cookbook about our misadventures. But yeah, he he got to kind of see that change in his lifetime. Yeah, the history of wheat is so interesting. And going back to what do we lose in those modern varieties? And one thing we think is nutrient density and a lot of flavor. So when you first started the mill, one of your favorite statistics to quote was a snippet of information your dad found in a historical government document. It goes like this. In 1874, there were 24,000 mills in the U.S. By 1982, there were fewer than 200 mills, and 80% of those mills were owned by just six larger companies. That is shocking. Since even starting Hayden Flower Mills or restarting Hayden Flower Mills 10 years ago, there's so many more community mills. So it's really exciting. It's really hopeful. There are 80 recipes in this cookbook, And it's an interesting mix of breads, naturally, and pastas, and salads and soups. It's not just baked goods. Can you talk a little bit about gathering the recipes? 
Yes. So I was so determined not to make a bread book about greens. First, there's already so many great bread sourdough books right now. Uh, so I didn't really want to compete with those. Um, I'm also not a bread baker. Shockingly, like I own a flour mill and I don't bake sourdough bread. What? So yeah, it's like my my secret confession. My dad <laughs> is really into sourdough bread. I think there's just so much more that you can do with these greens. And I really wanted them to show off. So the book's actually organized into 10 different chapters a grain each. So oats and white sonora and heritage bread flour in each chapter, I really wanted to show off like, what could you do with oats? Not just oatmeal cookies, like oat risotto, showing all the ways that you can transform a grain. You can cook the grain whole to make a salad. You can crack it. You can toast it. You can sprout it. You can always mill it into flour. So really just letting each grain kind of shine in terms of what it can do. So in the recipes, the the one thing that really fascinated me were the different flavor profiles of the grains. Can you talk a little bit about a few of them, like white Sonora? What's the flavor profile of that? Light and creamy with a sweet desert essence. Um, And white Sonora really has a history in the Southwest. Um, It's been here for hundreds of years. It's one of the first wheats that came to North America. And then let's see another one here. I feel like the rye one is pretty fun too. Yeah, I always think about rye with whiskey and bread, Mm. but you use rye in so many other different things. What's the flavor profile and what are some ways you use rye? Yeah, rye is a very distinctly flavored grain. So it was really fun to come up with recipes that bring out that flavor and highlight it. Um, I say in the book, it reminds me of black coffee and its mood and layered flavors. Strange comparison, but it has the slightest taste of fresh hay and a heady sage and floral aroma when freshly milled. What I do with it in the book is have a sunken quince cake. So it's a classic German sunken apple cake, but with rye and honey and quince in place of the apples, Um, a rye shortbread, a Christmas cookie. I feel like rye goes really well with warming spices and kind of the holidays. A carrot cake, rye porridge, that's with cracked rye, chocolate rye bourbon cookie. Like you said, the rye whiskey kind of connection there. And then a saffron strawberry galette with a rye crust. You can also cook the rye berries whole for a salad. So there's also a salad that has like bacon and whiskey soaked raisins. So everything in this chapter, I feel like is a little more like heavy, those like wintry recipes. So icorn is something I'd never heard of. And apparently it's the world's most primitive wheat that's been around for more than 12 thousand years. And archaeologists believe that the first loaves of bread were made with icorn. And so, okay, you call einkorn high maintenance. How come? Yes. So einkorn is really similar to, it almost looks like a wild grass. It's so old. So einkorn is very petite and it has this extra layer around the seed that's really hard to get off. And then once you do all that work, you're left with this tiny little seed, <laughs> like a sunflower seed. That's why it gets this reputation of being high maintenance. And then it's so expensive because the farmer had to do all this work and, you know, it didn't yield very much, but it is really delicious. It tastes like historical. I don't know. It just has a lot of depth to it. And One of my favorite recipes in the book is just a really simple einkorn waffle. I could eat that every, every morning. Okay. Chickpeas. How did a bean get into this book? 
So beans and wheat actually really pair well together. So um, in a farming sense, so um, beans, legumes fix nitrogen to the soil. So they're like a great rotational crop with wheat. Um, And chickpeas also grow really well in Arizona. They're a great arid adapted crop, do well with low water input. And then, you know, you have chickpea flour and, and Italian cooking and Indian cooking. So there's already this great, like rich culture around chickpea flour. Um, there's a recipe in the book that I'm really excited about people trying. It's a chickpea flour pound cake that has baharat spice and a tahini glaze. And it's really good and different and surprising. So the first four sections of this cookbook are sow, grow, harvest, and mill. Can you briefly explain these processes? And I've always felt like sow and grow were the same thing. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad you bring that up. I, yeah, these essays were so fun to write. Um, so sow, grow, harvest, mill. It's the four steps from planting to flower. But what I really wanted to do is kind of take those concepts and tell, you know, the nuts and bolts of how you make flour, but also the story of how our mill evolved over the past 10 years and how we grew. And then also my personal story, like how I grew as a person and how I was kind of milled <laughs> um, and transformed in the last 10 years. You asked about sow and grow. So sow is more about the seed. So just finding the seed to plant was a big part of our story because these heritage greens just didn't exist in any large quantity at the time that we started. So just finding the seeds, growing them out um, was a big piece of the story. How what we do as a stone mill and a heritage flower maker, like how is that so different from an industrial, you know, commodity grocery store bag of flour Um, and really kind of make that case for people giving these unique flowers a try. So the grains you're growing require 65% less water, less fertilizer, and a lot less upkeep than the industrialized system requires. That's so interesting. In Arizona, we want to be a lot more conscientious of our water usage. So I love telling people that these greens do take less input. So great for, you know, growing for a future with climate change. I feel like there's a lot of arguments for eating more heritage greens in our diet. And, you know, 90% of the time I want to convince people by just like, just taste it. It's so good. It's so flavorful. But then there's also all these other arguments, like it uses less inputs. It's so, it's so great for the soil. Like we eat a lot of flour as a society. And like, if we can just maybe add a few more of these heritage grains into our diet, but you know, when you make like banana bread with farro flour, it's just so, it's so satisfying. It has such a depth of flavor. Now to my segment called dream dinner party, where I ask you who you most want to invite to your dream dinner party and why. And for this segment, it can only be one person. I'm going to have to go with someone that I already know, a friend, because I just get too nervous dining with someone new. (laughs) So I'm going to go with the old friend, um, someone I talk about in the book, Gary Nabhan. Um, He's kind of the father of the local food movement here in Arizona. And he is just so fun and has so much curiosity that every time you eat with him, it's just like an adventure. 
So I don't see him too often these days. So I would love to have a dinner party with him. Where can we find you on the web and social media? So our website is HaydenFlowerMills.com and on Instagram, HaydenFlowerMills. And we're also on Facebook. To purchase The Miller's Daughter, head on over to cookerybythebook.com. And thanks so much, Emma, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you, Susie. Subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book. <laughs>